Genesis chapter 1. I'll read the whole chapter. This is how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetations, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth 
and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You may be seated. The late uh, Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias was fond of telling this, this story. Uh, he told it often in his sermons. I must have heard it four or five times just listening to different sermons. There were two Australian sailors that were on leave in London, and they had a night of drinking and revelry and found themselves on some street in London lost in the fog. And as they were trying to find their way, completely disoriented in a new city, inebriated and not able to to really figure out what's going on, a stranger was approaching them on the street. And so without much consideration, they just asked him, can you please tell us where we are? Now, the stranger was a highly decorated Navy officer in the British Navy, and he was quite upset by their casual approach to him. And so he looked at them, and and he said, do you know who I am? And one of the sailors said, we're really in trouble now. We don't know where we are. He doesn't know who he is. (laughs) This is a good description of where we find ourselves in our culture today. We don't know where we are, and we don't know who we are. We don't know where we're going. And as I was reflecting on just all the turmoil in our culture, and, and everybody's watching the news, and we're all affected by these, these multiple things that are happening around us, and all of us are trying to figure out just, just how do we get a handle on all this? I thought it would be a good idea for us to go back to the basics, go back to the very beginning of the Bible, and try to figure out what's wrong with this world. Because we all disagree on the diagnosis of what is actually wrong with us. And so I thought we'll take this fall and we'll go through the first 11 chapters of Genesis and we'll work through these these multiple issues. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a churchgoer and, and you've read the Bible and you've heard some of these things said, my hope is that during this series you will be renewed and I will be renewed in our understanding of the Christian worldview that we will understand what the Bible actually says, says about these big things of life, what our problems are, what, what our solutions are, how to navigate this landscape that we find ourselves in. And what I will promise to you this morning is that all of us, at one point or another, will feel uncomfortable because all of us have blind spots. And many of us, perhaps, have given into a different worldview and have neglected some parts of the Christian worldview. So part of my goal in preaching this sermon series is to unite us around the truth of Scripture and to remind us of what the Bible actually says about us. Now, if you're not a Christian, and and if you're listening, if you're watching, if you're here, I am just thrilled beyond explanation how wonderful it is that you are engaging with these truths. Because these are not just the truths for religious people. We believe that these are the truths that explain our reality. And so if you're skeptical of Christianity, but you're still willing to to give it a listen, if you are maybe seeking 
to, to grab hold of something that is more permanent and eternal, I welcome you into this conversation. And my challenge to you is just to simply try it on, to simply see whether this Christian worldview makes sense, whether it actually reflects the reality that you know, your own experience. I hope that you will give it a try and see if Christianity makes sense. So today, we're looking at the first chapter of Genesis, which contains the story of creation, as, as you have just heard me read it. And we're asking the question, what's wrong with this world? And every week, we'll, we'll pick a particular problem. And so today, the problem we're dealing with is the problem of purpose. The problem of purpose. It is my contention that one of our biggest problems today is that we simply don't know why we're here and what we are here for. It's my contention that one of our biggest problems is the problem of purpose. We simply don't know why we're here and what we are here for. So let's work through this text and let's first look at the basis for a purposeful life, the basis that Scripture gives us for a purposeful life. Secondly, let's consider our struggle to live a purposeful life. I'm going to be very honest about what we're struggling with. And then finally, we will discover the gift of a purposeful life that God gives us. So the basis, the struggle, and the gift. Okay, as we look at this first chapter of the Bible, a lot can be said about it. I'm not going to say everything. Of course I'm not. I have a very specific, specific focus here. My focus is to figure out what it says about our purpose. And so to do that, I'd like to point out three things as we think about our purpose from this chapter. We need to do three things. Number one, we need to hear God's voice. In this account of creation, we need to hear God's voice. Over and over again, we read, and God said, and God said, and when God said something, something happened. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God called this world into existence. This is a very important assertion that is foundational to our worldview, is foundational to our figuring out our purpose, is that God spoke everything into existence. We have a creator. This world has not happened by accident. Our existence is not self-generated. There is a source of all life, and that source is God. This world is not an independent entity, sufficient in itself. We owe our existence to our Creator. Now, a common mistake I found is to read this chapter with the question, how did God create the world? And, and there's merit in that, of course. There's a lot in this chapter that is about how God did it. But the main point of the chapter is not how God did it, is that God did it. The main point of Genesis 1, the main message, is to present humanity and to present the world in connection to God. That's why it begins with God. That's why God is mentioned over 30 times in this chapter. The point that the author of Genesis is making is that we are connected to God. 
The world cannot exist without him. The world didn't happen on its own. God made it. God spoke the world into existence. That's the first thing we notice is God's voice. The second thing we we notice is we need to recognize God's hand. In our text, we see an attentive and purposeful creator assigning to everything its, its existence, its value, its place, its meaning, its function. God works from the formless to the formed. That's what you see in this passage. He takes something without definition and he gives it definition. He gives it shape. There's a design that is behind God's creation. God has made everything to function according to his plan. You see, his hands, as it were, fashioned us and fashioned different parts of our world. The point here is that we are not self-determining. We do not make up our own purpose. We discover the purpose that our Creator has for us. St. Louis Science Center is currently holding an exhibition dedicated to Leonardo da Vinci and his love of science and and nature. And it features more than 60 life-sized recreations of the master's inventions, including things like the catapult, the steam cannon. Some of these you know, didn't fare well over time. We came up with better ways to do it. The tank, light projector, the diving suit. These are all the things that he came up in, in his time out of his mind just reflecting nature and, and how he perceived reality. Now, each item is an expression of da Vinci's idea. Each item was designed by him for a specific purpose. It'd be silly for us to claim that his steam cannon is supposed to project light or allow us to breathe underwater. In all the exhibits, we recognize the hand of the inventor. And so as you read this chapter, and what the Christian faith posits for us is that God not only gave existence to us, but God gave a definition to us. That God created us with specific functions in mind. That God wants us to live a certain way. There's a purpose in our lives. Now, if you look with me at Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28, this is where this statement is made as to the humanity's purpose. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is God's design for humanity? Well, we are made in God's image, meaning we reflect and represent God to his creation. We are made to have dominion over the world, meaning we are to fill the earth and subdue it and rule it. That's our work. We're made to work in that way. We are to rule over and care for God's creation. 
We're also made for relationships with God, certainly, and with other people. Male and female, he created them. Be fruitful and multiply. In the very beginning, God is already placing us in a communal, relational context. He doesn't imagine us as individual people. He puts us together right from the very beginning. We're not, to, we're not meant to function on our own. In all of this purposeful life that is described here, a life that is patterned after God's own life, a life that gives us a, a God-given, God-designed purpose, a life that puts us in relationships with others, giving us meaningful work to do, all of that has to happen in connection to God. We're not meant to function independently from Him. All these things come from Him to us. Or to put it differently, it is His story. It is His Word that is meant to give shape to our lives. And then number three, we need to see God's smile. We heard His voice. We recognize His hand in the design of creation. But there's also God's smile. Whatever God creates, He approves of and rejoices over. This is something that we miss in this account often. But God is happy. God creates and He rejoices over what He creates. And by the way, His approval precedes any of our accomplishments. It's really important to see that in the original design, God proclaims what He creates as good before it has a chance to do anything. Just purely because God made it and it reflects Him. And God rejoices in His work. God says, He saw it and it was good. And so He rejoiced. And then when He made humanity on the sixth day, He said, it is very good. And then He rested. As if recognizing that this is the pinnacle of creation. This is the, the, uh, the very top of what He could do for us. is creating humanity. And so He rejoiced. He smiled. And if I could reach a little bit just in the next chapter, on the seventh day, God rested. Why did God rest? He was satisfied with His work. He was happy that everything worked exactly as He imagined it to work. And so He was done creating. Now, this is what the Bible teaches about the basis for our purpose. God's voice bringing everything in existence. We're not independent. God's hand fashioning us, meaning that we have a purpose that is not self-determined, but it is determined by God. And that God approves of us, that we are His creation in whom He is pleased. Now let's consider our lives now. This is where it gets dicey for us. Researchers show us that we are becoming increasingly unhappy as a culture. In fact, the researchers are connecting our unhappiness with the lack of meaning and purpose in our lives. Just one statistic, and it's tragic, that the suicide rate in the U.S. is the highest recorded in 28 years and is rising. What is remarkable is that our growing sense of unhappiness is happening in a culture that has prioritized personal happiness. Don't you find it strange that we as a culture have committed to make ourselves happy? Just think about 
all the time and energy and, and skill that is being dispersed to make us feel better about ourselves. From early childhood, we're encouraged to pursue our dreams, to follow our hearts. We're told to be free, to discover our own path, to fulfill our own vision of a meaningful and happy life. So with all that effort, with all the direction and the culture, we are becoming increasingly unhappy. Why is that? A culture committed to happiness, committed to the pursuit of happiness, is becoming less and less happy and losing meaning and purpose. Well, the Bible's answer to that peculiar situation is that we have disconnected ourselves from God. We no longer hear His voice, recognize His hand, or see His smile. In our pursuit of a purposeful life, we have made a critical mistake. We have centered our pursuit on the self. In other words, we have been functioning as creators and not as creatures. By severing our connection to God, we have become formless, shapeless, in need of definition, and ultimately purposeless. We see ourselves more so in this culture, but that's a general human tendency. We see ourselves as self-determining, self-sufficient, and self-centered beings. We are wanderers who claim we like to make our own way, when in reality, we don't know what our destination is. We have no home, so we make our home on the road. We're driving at night without a map, without the stars and moon above, without the streetlights, hoping that our own sense of direction and the meager light produced by our own car's headlights will get us somewhere. We pretend we are flying when in actuality we are falling. Humanity has become unmoored. We're lost at sea claiming that we are exactly where we want to be. We're a cell phone without a charger, slowly running out of battery. We claim we do not need anyone else to agree with us or to affirm our own path, and yet we live our lives in a desperate search for approval. We cannot rest because we rarely feel accomplished and satisfied. Now, the source of our lack of meaning and purpose in life is our relentless commitment to put ourself at the center. We think the key to happiness is making our voice louder, making our hands stronger, and making our smiles brighter. I heard an interview with Jamila Jamil, who's a popular actress from The Good Place, the TV show The Good Place, in which she describes her own struggles with being happy and finding purpose in life. Listen to what she said, and, and I think she's representing a view that's popular in our culture that many of us have bought into as well. She said, It was truly a breakdown after realizing why I was so unhappy, why I feel lonely even with myself. And it was because I wasn't a truth-teller. 
I was insincere. I was the clown. I had to be the life and soul of the party and the entertainer. And I always came with stupid anecdotes. And I didn't tell anyone who I really was. Now, warts and all, I've just decided to make it my journey, my entire goal, to show the world exactly who I am and risk not being accepted, but at least be fundamentally honest to myself and true to myself. Now, while I agree with Jamil that there's a problem in pretending and being insincere, and many of us are, are caught in that cycle of just trying to be what someone else wants us to be. And there's all sorts of psychological problems. There's all sorts of unhappiness that comes from that. But I'm not sure that the solution to that problem is unfiltered honesty without consideration of how it might affect others. However, this is a common strategy employed in our culture today. We look at our unhappiness, we look at our lack of purpose and meaning, and we say, I know what the solution is. We just need to be more ourselves. We need to just put ourselves out there more and present ourselves as we really are and make our voice louder and stronger and, and fashion ourselves with our own hands. And then, maybe then, we will get a glimpse of the cosmic smile and feel approval at last. We are told in our culture that being honest and truthful about who we are will lead to a life of meaning. Well, do you remember Elsa? Do you remember Elsa? You may know her as the Queen of Arendelle. She's no longer the Queen of Arendelle if you saw the latest installment. And if you have children, this has been the soundtrack of your lives for the last, I don't know, six, eight years. This is what she's saying. I won't sing it, but I'll quote her. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. What she's saying is what many of us are saying. The problem is the restrictions that have been put on me. I've been placed in a certain pattern that doesn't belong to me, that's not mine, so I need to break free. I need to create my own rules, I need to create my own expressions, my own freedom, and then, then I will be happy. Now in Elsa's case, we know how her commitment to define her own purpose worked out. Not so well, right? Almost killed her sister and froze the kingdom. That's how it worked out for Elsa. I don't think that the self-determining, self-directed, self-centered approach to a purposeful life really works. I'm not only saying that as a Christian on philosophical and theological grounds, I'm also saying that because other people in the culture, secular people, unbelieving, not religious people are noticing exactly the same thing that I am saying. The whole field of positive psychology has recognized this problem. And you may not know what that field is, but you have heard these ideas, undoubtedly. There's much research that has been done lately to try to determine how to make us happier. Psychology has historically dealt with our problems and trying to heal a person from a particular issue. Well, now many psychologists are turning to the positive sense and are saying, 
there's nothing really wrong, but we're not happy. So what needs to happen here? How can we develop strategies to make us happier? And so, for example, Emily Esfahani Smith, in her best-selling book, The Power of Meaning, 2017, it came out, and then in her TED Talk, which you can watch online and kind of get the ideas that she is promoting, she says that a meaningful life has four pillars. Now, she's noticing exactly what I'm saying to you today. She's not a believer, she's not a Christian, but she's noticing exactly the same thing. She's saying that we have pursued happiness so hard and we're not happy. And she says that's because we're lacking, we lack meaning, we lack purpose in life. And so she did a lot of research, and she said there are four pillars, there are four aspects, four components of a happy life, of a meaningful life, of a purposeful life. And this is what they are. Number one, belonging. Belonging, engaging in meaningful relationships and being part of a community. Number two, purpose. And by that she means vocation or job. Preferably a job that actually serves others. That makes us happier when we serve others, research shows. Number three, storytelling. Or a coherent, redemptive narrative that explains our existence and specifically explains our suffering. It's very important. She says we, need to, we all need to come up with a story to explain who we are and why bad things happen to us and how we can grow through it in a redemptive way. And finally, transcendence. Transcendence is experience of something bigger than we are that creates a state of a sense of awe and wonder. Now, the premise of positive psychology is that by reducing our self-focus, we become more meaningfully engaged with life, we become more purposeful, and we actually experience happiness to a greater degree. Now, notice what the secular writer, secular psychologist is saying. She is saying that our problem is the self. And so we need to come up with components of life that actually break us out of the self, make us less self-focused, less self-centered, and these all four pillar, pillars are other-centered. Transcendence, i got to find something bigger than me. So what they do sometimes is they would just take kids, teenagers or college students, they take them to this huge forest and just have them stare at trees because you realize the grandeur of nature, and that's bigger than you. That gives you a sense of wonder. It actually makes you happier. Transcendence, belonging, focusing on other people, being part of a community that you are not defining, but that defines you. Storytelling. What is the narrative that actually explains me? It comes from outside. It's not, it's not me. It's other-centered. And the last one is purpose, a job that focuses on other people. Now, Smith's TED Talk has been watched by over 9 million people. 9 million people. Imagine 9 million people. That's a lot of people that are resonating with these ideas. Why? Why is it that in a culture that is relentlessly focused on the self as the way for happiness, people are craving ideas that are other-centered? And they're reading books and they're listening to lectures that tell them, don't focus on yourself. 
Why is it that we're all resonating with this other-centeredness as a way to happiness? My contention is today that we are resonating with these ideas because we cannot escape the features of God's image implanted in our own hearts. Regardless of your faith, regardless of your life experience, all of us intuitively understand, at least at some point in our lives, that focusing on myself, that putting the self at the center does not actually bring happiness. There's a different purpose, there's a different design that explains who I am and gives me a hope to be happy. So when, when Smith says these things, when she talks about belonging, when she talks about purpose and, and storytelling and transcendence, we resonate with that because this is exactly what God said. Go back to our text and remember what we just read. Belonging. God said, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Be fruitful and multiply. Belonging. Purpose. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living thing that moves on the earth. That's purpose. Storytelling. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God said that. And transcendence. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Bigger than us. Do you see how even people who are not directly interacting with Scripture are intuitively grasping for the ideas that are revealed to us in Scripture from the very first page of the Bible? This is why these ideas resonate with us. This is why Disney made a movie about a self-centered princess being saved by the true love of another. Spoiler alert, this is how Frozen ends. True love of another. Other-centered love transformed a self-centered, fearful, anxious, unhappy person. And positive psychology can certainly help us become happier and to live a more purposeful life. But I don't believe that positive psychology alone can solve our problem of purpose completely. Even with all realizations of the futility of the self-centered approach, I think we're still too afraid to ask the big question, which other is the most important in the other-centered approach. By that I mean that we've established, in our experience, in our research, we've established that to be happy is to be other-centered. You need to have someone else you're focusing on. You can't just always focus on yourself. That doesn't bring us happiness or purpose. We've established that. But then we fail to ask the big question. Who should we focus on? Which other, which other person is more important than everybody else. Stanford professor Dave Evans, who uh, he and his partner teach a class on designing your life. It's the most popular class in Stanford. 
The reason is because they're helping kids, they're helping college students to figure out what to do with their lives. The goal of that class is to provide purpose for their lives. And lots of people are resonating with that because we live in a culture that is largely purposeless. And so what he says, what Dave Evans says, is he says finding purpose in life is one thing. Defining the purpose of life is quite another. See the difference? Finding purpose in life is one thing, but defining the purpose of life is quite different. Here's what he's getting at. Positive psychology, some cultural thinkers, cultural methods can give you something to live for. They can help you by focusing on other people, by focusing on a goal, by focusing on a good job, by seeking transcendence, by finding a story that defines you. They can help you realize that this is the way to go. But they don't have the destination to give you. They can give you a purpose in life, but they're not asking the question, what is the purpose of life? I think we're afraid what we might find if we ask that question. Because for all the other centeredness of positive psychology, it is still determined by the self. It's my story. It's the story I choose to define myself with. It's the type of transcendence that appeals to me. It's the other centeredness of relationships that I choose, the community that I join. And it is the kind of job that I decide to pursue, and any job will do. Do you see how for all the talk of of being other-centered, it's still coming out of my own self? And so it can only get you so far. And just like Elsa, that confused princess has to learn in the sequel in Frozen 2, I want you all to go home and then watch Frozen and Frozen 2 and contrast it and write a paper on it. (laughs) But in Frozen 2, what happened is Elsa still needed to learn where she came from and what her purpose was. And that's where we are. For all these helpful things, we still need to figure out where we came from. In other words, who made us? And what does he This, the most significant other, what does he want from us? The self-generated, self-directed approach doesn't work. And so the big and lasting solution to the problem of purpose has to come to us from the outside. In fact, I think it comes to us as a gift from God. Because a gift from someone else is the only completely detached from the self experience. Someone decides to do something for me that will define and give me purpose. And God did something as a gift, or as we say in the church, by grace. God did something that returned his voice into the creation, that revealed his hand to us once again, and that restored his smile toward us. And God did that in the most wonderful and unexpected way imaginable. Do you know why? Because God tells the best stories. And His stories are true. So this is what God did. 
This is what Christians call the gospel or the good news. In the person of Jesus Christ, our Creator became a creature to save the creatures who fancied themselves as their own creators. In the person of Jesus Christ, our Creator God became a creature Himself to save us, the creatures who fancied themselves to be their own creators. As the Apostle John puts it in his Gospel, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The voice that called the world into existence put on humanity and lived in the world as a human being. This is what happened, that cosmic happening happened in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Jesus spoke with us. The voice of God that called everything into creation spoke with us. He taught us. He healed us. And when Jesus was put on the cross, the hands that made the world were pierced, nailed to the tree for our selfishness, for our rejection of God's purpose for humanity. Creator died for His creatures. Friends, that's love. That's kind of true love that has the potential to change you completely. And on the third day, when Jesus rose from the dead and declared that all who are humble enough to come to Him and to believe in Him and to trust Him, He declared that all those can once again experience the smile of God. On the cross when Jesus was dying, He said, it is finished. What is finished? What did He do? What did he, what did he accomplish for us? What He meant was that the new work of restoring His creation was done. That our sins were forgiven. That once again we have the cosmic approval of our Creator. Anybody who is in Christ, who's connected themselves to Him, who's restored that connection to God by faith in Christ, now has the smile of God. The face that turned away from Jesus on the cross so that Jesus could experience that cosmic alienation is now turned towards us with unguarded smile. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus welcome us into the seventh day rest of God. Friends, if you are tired of shapeless living, if you are tired of creating your own meaning and constructing your own purpose, fashioning your own life according to your own design, Jesus says to you today, come to me. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the voice of God that is sounding into your heart today. God inviting you, no, summoning you 
to hear His voice again, to hear His word to you, to hear the good news of Jesus, and to see His hand, His pierced hand that is reaching out to you, and Jesus saying, take me by the hand and follow me, and I will lead you into a life of purpose, the right purpose, the true purpose, where you will belong, where you will experience real transcendence, where you will find true, meaningful vocation, and where you will learn the one story that actually explains everything in your life. In following Jesus, we hear God's voice, and we recognize His purpose, and we see His smile. This is the gift of God to us. Will you accept it this morning?